Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your host Ben Davison and it is Sunday the 2nd of October 2022 and I hope it's a beautiful day wherever you are around the nation or indeed around the world. And I want to start with some excellent news for our legal system and social progress in Australia. Jane Jaggett will be appointed to the High Court of Australia, giving our highest court its first ever female women majority. This is a huge step, a remarkable milestone in Australia for social progress. When you consider that the majority of Australians are women, it is natural and logical that our High Court would reflect that at some point. Some would say that point has come far too late, that it should have come much earlier. I'm not here to debate that. What I will say is that it's excellent that it has now happened. It's excellent that we have a a Labor government at a Commonwealth level and an Attorney General in Mark Dreyfus who is prepared to have a court that reflects Australia more broadly. And of course, anyone who watched Insiders this morning will know that Mark Dreyfus has had a huge week, both appointing a new High Court Justice, but also obviously introducing the National Anti-Corruption Commission, or NAC, bill into the House of Parliament. Now, Dan Tehan, a opposition front bencher, has called it a knackery, that it will be a knackery because it will have the power to conduct public hearings under exceptional circumstances and where it is in the public interest, the threshold that is used in Victoria, which is different to the threshold in some other states and territories. And of course, this has been the subject of some criticism by those who want every hearing to be public. Mark Dreyfus made the point on Insiders when questioned by David Spears that the findings will all be public, that the accountability is there. It's built into the system of the NAC, that there are members of the government, the opposition and independents from the House and the Senate on the oversight committee for this commission, that there is a commissioner, there are deputy commissioners, there is a substantial budget. Van and I talked about the structure of the NAC on the week on Wednesday. So if you want to listen to that, go check that out on uh, our latest episode of the week on Wednesday. The point I want to make about this is that I support public hearings, as does Labor, by the way, as does the bill that's been introduced. One of the things we have to be mindful of, and the panel on Insiders discussed this, is that whatever commission gets set up, for it to be a reform, for it to exist beyond the term of this government, it has to be widely, broadly, and deeply supported. It has to have the support of enough of a majority of Australians so that a change of government doesn't result in it being abolished. Part of that is having the other party of government at least commit to the principles of it to ensure that the other party of government is not able to be so hypercritical of its operations that it builds a mandate for its quote-unquote reform and abolishment. Now, Peter Dutton has given in-principle support for the NAC model. And the interesting thing about that 
is that it is very different to the Morrison coalition era model. It does have retrospective power, so it can look at things that happened before it was established, if the commissioner says it needs to. It can take public referrals, which the the Morrison uh, proposal was not able to do. Uh, it will be transparent and accountable to the parliament, but not guided by the cabinet, which under the Morrison model, they would be guided by cabinet's uh, decisions and referrals. Uh, and of course, it will have the capacity to hold public hearings if there is exceptional circumstances and it's in the public interest to do so. And of course, under the Morrison model, there were no public hearings allowed. Now, I will say this about public hearings. There is, of course, times where public hearings are in the public interest and, in fact, help build a case for change either of laws or of behaviours. But there are also times where public hearings are not about getting to the root cause of an issue, the corruption of an issue, the behaviour that's been done, but can actually be used in a political way or can actually make it more difficult to build a case uh, for further prosecution down the line. And the example I want to give here is the Trade Union Royal Commission established by Tony Abbott. Now, that was a commission that held its hearings in public, and those hearings were designed from day one to embarrass the trade union movement and the individuals who were called before the commission. It was an absolute politicised circus. In the end, the commissioner himself was, in the eyes of the general public, tainted because he was doing Liberal Party fundraisers at the same time he was supposed to be conducting this independent Royal Commission. Now, there was no criminality found, but there were millions and millions of dollars wasted on public hearings. There was days weeks, months of media coverage, of hearings about what people did or didn't remember, uh, documents that did or didn't exist. And quite frankly, the whole thing was designed, as I've said, to embarrass people. Now, thankfully, the Australian public over time has been able to see that in its correct historical context and light. And that is to say that it was a Tony Abbott political witch hunt against unions and union members. That's been proven beyond shadow of a doubt. It's also interesting that the 2015 ACTU Congress, that's the peak body for policy setting in the trade union movement, actually put forward a proposal for a federal ICAC in 2015. The union movement has not been opposed to anti-corruption commissions and in fact consistently national secretary and leader of the trade union movement after leader of the trade union movement has said how opposed to corruption they are because of course we are anyone who's involved in unions despises corruption and any corruption anywhere it might occur is anathema to our values we believe in collective benefit we believe in working together for the benefit of the whole, not corrupting the system 
to have individuals benefit at the expense of others. So, of course, the union movement has led on this for the last seven years. But it's important to remember that public hearings that are in the public interest and are investigating an extraordinary set of circumstances are quite warranted, absolutely warranted. But public hearings that are just a fishing expedition or that are actually being used as a means of balancing or rebalancing other public hearings that maybe the other side didn't like before are not in the public interest. And we have to make sure that we don't end up with an anti-corruption commission that is used as a political football. National politics is very different to state politics. And in fact, Mark Dreyfus made this point and David Spears made this point on Insiders Today as well, that at a national level, you're talking about a much larger economy and you're talking about much larger sums of money and you're talking about potentially national security issues as well. These are not things that have to be contemplated at a state level. State has its own complexities. You can think about planning. You can think about development. Those, of course, we know are areas that are ripe and rife for corruption. At a federal level, it's a different type of ball game. So look, there'll be public uh, uh, opportunities to make submissions. That opens up this week. If people have an interest in this, they should absolutely get involved. I want to talk about two other issues very quickly. The first is this week we will see uh, the Reserve Bank probably increase interest rates once again. This is on the back of increasing inflation. Uh, Inflation remains a problem, but also on the back of Liz Truss smashing the United Kingdom's economy. This is the new Prime Minister of Great Britain, in case you weren't aware. The Conservatives have made Liz Truss the Prime Minister of Great Britain, and her and her treasurer have put forward a huge suite of tax cuts for the wealthiest people in Britain, as well as removing some of the caps on banker bonuses, essentially massive unfunded tax cuts. They will have to borrow billions upon billions of pounds in order to fund this. It caused a massive fall in the value of the British pound. It caused market chaos, pension funds almost went broke. The uh, the uh, governor of the um, uh, English Central Bank had to step in, uh, undertake some bond buying to stabilise their economy. Liz Truss says she's done nothing wrong. They're now predicting that there'll be interest rate increases in the UK of somewhere between 1.25 and 1.5% the next time the Bank of England meets. That's a huge increase. In Australia, we're more likely to have uh, probably a 0.5% increase. But again, that just increases pressure on households. At the same time, wages continue to decline. So... We need to be really thinking through our economic policy. In a couple of weeks, Jim Chalmers will hand down the first budget, a sort of mini budget, if you like, uh, of the new Commonwealth Labor government. There'll be a budget again in May. There are three budgets between now and when the stage three tax cuts for the wealthy are due to take place here in Australia. Lots of discussion at the back end of this week about what, the UK example tells us might happen 
if those tax cuts go ahead and the current climate, the current circumstances are still in place. Of course, it's different. There is a longer lead time. We've got three budgets between now and then. There are opportunities to make changes in our both economic environment, but also our economic policy uh, that helps to shape that. Quite frankly, we've said it before, Van and I have said it, the union movement have said it, we oppose the stage three tax cuts, giving the wealthiest Australians a disproportionately large tax return while there are so many millions of households struggling to make ends meet, struggling through wage cuts, record numbers of Australians working multiple jobs just to pay the mortgage, increasing mortgage payments, increasing rental stress, increasing homelessness. Those are not the economic conditions under which we think you should be giving tax cuts to wealthy Australians. And also the overall structure of the tax cuts makes our system less progressive. It flattens the tax rates. It means that people on very high incomes are going to be paying the same rate of tax as people on $40,000 a year. Those sorts of principles are not consistent with progressive taxation policy. And Scott Morrison, when he introduced these tax cuts, was very proud of flattening the tax system. He is a Freemanite after all. He believes that one flat rate of tax should be applied to everyone. He doesn't believe in progressive. And in fact, if you look at the commentary in the UK at the moment, the people who support the Liz Truss tax cuts, who are of a similar nature to the people who support the Morrison upper-class tax cuts here, are saying the quiet bit out loud. They're saying they don't think equality should be a government policy outcome. They don't think equality is something we should aim for in the way we structure our economic policy. They don't think that having consideration for, quote-unquote, the poor is something government should take into account when shaping economic policy. They're saying that out loud. They're going on television talking about it. And it's quite phenomenal to hear this kind of throwback to Thatcherism, to Reaganism, to the real darkest, greediest, nastiest parts of neoliberal economic policy. But we have some time here in Australia, and hopefully we can start to make some inroads against that flattening out, that uh, neoliberal, Thatcherite, Reaganite uh, model. I want to talk very briefly also about the removal of the isolation orders. Lots of discussion about this, particularly online over the last few days. National Cabinet met on Friday. The uh, National Chief Medical Officer suggested that it was an appropriate policy to remove mandatory five-day isolation periods. There was some discussion on insiders about this being predominantly an economic uh, issue uh, driven by budget concerns. Uh, And of course, New South Wales and Tasmania flagged on Thursday that they were going to push for these changes. Now, there are concerns about this, and I think quite rightly. There are concerns that people who are in casual employment will go to work when sick. We know that if you create 
an economic environment where people are forced to choose between attending work when unwell or being able to pay their bills and put food on the table, they will go to work when unwell. And, and that's, the, that's, a, that's a reality that we know for millions of Australians who don't have access to paid leave, they now face uh, the potential of taking COVID into their workplace. Now, there's lots of discussion about, well, we've still got a couple of weeks before those COVID isolation orders come off. There's an opportunity there to put in place uh, protections, some regulation around uh, workplace health and safety. Uh, There's lots of discussion about that, and I've seen some commentary about that today, and hopefully those things will be done. But it's important that we remember that as the situation changes, we need to be able to change our policy positions. Now, it's true, infection rates are at their lowest level for some time. The outbreaks in aged care have gone from 1,200 to 200. These are all good things. But there are still many vulnerable Australians who feel particularly at risk. And quite frankly, I think removing the isolation orders does seem, in my view, to be a little premature. Now, I hope I'm wrong. I hope that actually we're out of the worst of this wave and removing the isolation orders won't have a big impact. I will say this. In the UK, in the last seven days, they've seen a 37% increase in hospitalisation. They're at the beginning of an autumn outbreak. Now, of course, we know borders are porous once again. People can come and go from the UK. We are likely, in fact, in the discussions about removing the isolation orders, it was discussed that we are likely to see more outbreaks in Australia over the coming two years and that it's probable we'll have another outbreak before the end of 2022. There are only three months left of 2022. That means possibly another Christmas like the one we had Last year, that was a nightmare for everyone. Obviously, some key things. Get vaxxed, get boosted, wear a mask on public transport. I'm amazed at the number of people cramming into sealed metal tubes with recycled air for an hour to an hour and a half who are not wearing masks, who are coughing, spluttering, they're shoulder to shoulder with other people. Like, that just seems really, really basic to me. When I'm getting on public transport, I'm wearing a mask. And if that makes you a little uncomfortable to look at, oh, well, I'm sorry about that. But quite frankly, I think we should all still be wearing masks on public transport. It's not that big a deal. It's not that hard to do. And frankly, it gives you that little bit of extra protection. It's really absolutely vital, I think, that we do it. Look, hopefully, hopefully, The removal of the isolation orders has come at the right point. Sometimes these things can only be judged through history. If there is a change, though, we need to be supportive of shifting policy to adjust to it. So if there is a big outbreak, if we do see spikes in infections, spikes in hospitalizations, the sorts of numbers that they're seeing in the UK with that 37% increase in hospitalization, that we do support our public officials to move quickly to put in place protections, whether that's isolation orders or mandatory mask wearing or whatever it might be that's required to protect Australians. 
we have had more people die this year than the rest of the pandemic combined. And, you know, there was an article about that and why that happened and, and that overall our death rate is still much lower than the rest of the world. And that's a good thing. Our death rate should be lower. We want the lowest possible death rate. We have to be very mindful that there are some people in our community who will be even more vulnerable. And when I think about workers and I think about casuals and I think about subcontractors and I think about all the people who don't have access to paid sick leave, they're the people who are likely now to go to work when sick and likely to inadvertently, unwittingly, unwillingly spread COVID even more. Now, in Victoria, there is a paid sick leave program. Check it out. You can go to Victorian unions and check that out. Obviously, the union movement is active in almost all of these issues. You can join your union online, australianunions.org.au slash wow. Sign up now. Sign up before you go back to work for the week. And of course, don't forget, Van and I will be doing a week on Wednesday live Melbourne Fringe Show on the 12th of October. So come along, get your tickets to that. It's in the common rooms at Victorian Trades Hall in Melbourne. Uh, We will use that as our uh, episode for the week as well. There's going to be audience interaction through technology, so you won't have to put your hand up or get a roving mic. It's all going to be interactive from the comfort of your own chair. Tickets have been selling pretty quick, so get online now. You can check those out at the Melbourne Fringe Festival website and, of course, links on all of our social media as well. So until Van joins me on Wednesday for the week on Wednesday, remember to be kind to yourself and to each other.